You know, Todd said it a couple of weeks ago, and I completely concur that there is nothing like listening to the singing from the front of the auditorium. It is something that is special, and for those of y'all who are afraid to come up to the first pews, um, you might try it just once in a while because it is something really wonderful to behold, is to hear your singing. Um, Before we get started, I would like to take a point of personal privilege, if I can, Um, and I feel like I can because I'm here with my church family. Um, I was up here just a couple of weeks ago. By the way, my name's Matt Wade, and I'm married to Amanda, and we've been a part of this church family for over 20 years. Um, We have raised and are continuing to raise our family here in this church, and we have two daughters, Olivia and Annabelle. And a couple weeks ago, when I was up here doing the announcements, um, Amanda was not able to join me because our oldest daughter had decided to have a car accident. Um, and so, and she was also sick on top of that, so Amanda stayed home with Olivia. Um, and so I invited Annabelle to come up here and join me to do the announcements, and she refused to do so. And so I embarrassed her and pointed her out in front of the entire congregation. And so, Annabelle, I'm sorry that I embarrassed you um, two weeks ago. I will do my best not to embarrass you again today. Even if today happens to be your birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday, Annabelle. Oh, dads, the gift that keeps on giving. Before we get started this morning, let's pray. Our most gracious, one and only, majestic, heavenly Father. What a blessing and comfort it is for us to be able to gather together as believers, using this opportunity this morning to rightly worship you. To worship you and everything that you have done for us. What you have done for us really cannot be described. It can only be felt, it can only be absorbed, and it can only be lived. Dear Lord, Help us do those things. Help us set aside the distractions. Help us make us smaller. Help make me smaller so that you may shine bigger and that you may be greater. And dear Lord, I pray that everything we do this morning as we study your word, being glory and honor to you, and all these things we bring in your Son, our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is great to be up here this morning, and it is um, my opportunity to sit there and talk to you this morning about one of the what I call one of the tenets of our church's mission. Um, Doug McAlpine did a great job last week of kicking us off by talking to us about loving outreach as one of the tenets. As he reminded us, and he did, like I said, a wonderful job. Um, God has given us each one of us a story. Whether we know it or not, he's given us a story that if we allow him, we can use that story to reach out to those around us. Um, This morning, 
my opportunity is I get to talk to you about one of the other tenets, which is genuine worship. And just as a real quick reminder, um, genuine worship and what our mission is here at church, I'll just go ahead and briefly tell you what it is. And it is, we seek to live out our Christ-centered lives through biblical truth, authentic community, genuine worship, and loving outreach. Biblical truth is centered on the truth of God's Word, which is living, powerful, active, and relevant. Authentic community, since our relationship with Christ is inseparable from our relationship with one another. Genuine worship of God that permeates our daily lives, choices, and relationships. And as Doug taught us last week, loving outreach as we share the love, hope, and message of Jesus as we cultivate relationships with one another. Now, although I have spoken to our church family before, every time you come and do this, it is a bit nerve-wracking. It is a bit humbling, and unfortunately, because I am not blessed with a lot of hair on my head, I can't hide. Sometimes when I get nervous, the sweat shows up right here, and so I might have that, as we like to say, glow that comes from the forehead, all right? Let's just pretend that's God shining down on us today and it's glowing out to you. So if you see my forehead shine, it's because really I am nervous. But it also gives me the opportunity to understand better what Todd does on such a regular basis. And I can't help but appreciate what he does on a regular basis, and I certainly want to thank him for what he does for us. As I mentioned before, our topic this morning is genuine worship. Genuine worship that permeates our daily lives, choices, and relationships. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, if you've been coming here for the past few months, because two months ago, Kerry Gilbert, when he was teaching Romans 12, verses 1 through 9, talked about this exact topic. Honestly, I thought about printing out a transcript of his sermon and just reading it to you today, and it would be wonderful. I would commend you to go online and to listen to that sermon again because he did a great job. And what I'm hoping this morning over the next few hours is that you'll see (laughs) you're listening. That's good. My hope this morning is that you'll see what Carrie taught us two months ago falls right in line with what I want to talk about this morning. As a final note before we get started, the way that I teach, if, you're, if you ever have come to my um, adult Bible fellowship that I teach with Mark Hardy, I like to teach through asking questions. Now, obviously, they're going to be rhetorical this morning. We're not going to have give and take, although that would be fun. It would be a few hours, I think, before we got finished. Um, these rhetorical questions are going to seem a little bit silly, and I understand that up front, that they might seem a little silly, but bear with me. I'm hoping that I can use these silly questions to help express to you what the Lord has laid on my heart. So let's start off with the silly questions. So genuine worship is in our mission statement, and why is it important to have that as a key component of our mission? Why is that a key component of Melanie Park Church? Or in other words, put it another way, why is it important to worship God? Now, that is a silly question, especially to this group here this morning. I mean, the fact of the matter is you are here this morning sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning or you're watching online 
So it must be obvious that worshiping the Lord is something that is important. At least it should be, you're thinking, self-evident. I mean, think about the songs that we just listened to and we just sang together, the words of those songs. When we talk about the majesty of the one and only, about how with His very Word, He created the heavens and the earth. Just by saying it, it was done. To say that we should worship and whether or not it's important to worship Him seems definitely to be something that is self-evident. But... The way that I go, I have to sit there and dig a little bit. And let's sit there and just see what what we can find out about it. So what does the Bible have to say about it? I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front that there is, it wouldn't be just a few hours, it would be a few months if we went through everything that is in the Bible that talks about worshiping the Lord and what it means to worship the Lord. That is very, very true. So please do not mistake that anything that I talk about this morning is being exhaustive. My goal here this morning is to give us a good idea of what genuine worship really means. What genuine worship means for us here at Melanie Park, and specifically what genuine worship means as Christians. So understand that what I go through here this morning is not considered exhaustive. But I'd like to start with a verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. So beginning in the Old Testament, it's clear that God has given us a command that we are to worship Him. We are to worship the God. And not only are we to worship God, we are to only worship God. There are no other gods. We risk, by worshiping other gods, they risk being destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. That's a pretty clear image, then, of how important it is that it's a command from God that He gave us. And in fact, this is something that we will, re- we will, re- we will go back to this verse here shortly. In just a minute, we'll see how important it really is. The other thing that I like to sit there and point out, and this may not be as clear, but I'm hoping it will be clear by the time that we get done here this morning, is that being a Christian is inextricably intertwined with worshiping God. I want you all to spell that, inextricably intertwined. (laughs) Those are words that I like to use, right? Inextricably intertwined. What does that really mean? What does it mean that being a Christian is inextricably intertwined with worshiping God. Well, it means that is, you know, I really don't have a good command of the English language, so I'm about to use a French term. I don't even know why I would use a French term since I can't speak English, but it is a raison d'etre. I'm sure some of y'all have heard that term. What that means is, in case you don't know, it's it's our reason for being. Worshiping the Lord. It's our reason as Christians. It's our reason for being. If you'll follow along with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10, We just got finished doing a study of, of 1 and 2 Peter in our ABF, and so a lot of that is on my mind. But if you'll follow along with me, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To give a little bit of context on this verse, Peter is writing this letter to the early church and to early Christians who are being persecuted. But they are Christians that he is writing to, and he's reminding them about what it means to be a Christian, what the wonderful promises that has been given to you as a Christian, the promise of eternal life that has been granted to you by accepting Christ as your Savior and understanding who he is. So Peter's writing this letter to the early church and the early Christians, and he's reminding them of who they are. When I say that they're being persecuted, if you know anything about the church history at this point in time, to say persecution is really putting it very mildly. They're being killed. Nero is starting to use them as living sacrifices to wild beasts. So to say that they're being persecuted is a glowing understatement, but he wants to remind them of who they are and what God has done for them. And so look at that. If he goes, when he goes through this explanation, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to go through everything that's there. And Peter, when he teaches and when he writes, there's an awful lot that is packed in all of his, in all of his letters. But listen to this. So that you may declare his excellencies, or your version may say praises, of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that you may proclaim, why were you called out? So that you may proclaim his excellencies, who brought you out of this dark light. A reason for being. You know, going through here, one of the things that that you like to do when teaching is you like to look at good, trustworthy commentaries. And as I was doing so, I thought that what John Piper said was um, very good. He said, he puts it this way. He has given us our identity as Christians in order that his identity, God's, might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. The meaning of our identity is that the excellency of God be seen in us. We're going to talk about that more later. We're still on the topic of whether or not it's important to worship God, and I'm sure that this group, you're probably convinced, but still, again, bear with me. There's a couple of biblical examples that I want to bring to your attention as well. You don't have to turn with me, but I'm going to read a little bit from Job. This is in Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 22, and just follow along with me for a minute. And of course, most of y'all know the story of Job and understand what's going on here, um, and if, if you don't, then I encourage you to do a study of Job. But Job, the Lord is allowing Satan to actually, the Lord has taken his protection off of Job. The only thing that can't happen is, this, is Satan can't kill Job. So this is what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he's still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While that one was still speaking, 
Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, if this wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. While he's still speaking, the next messenger comes in and tells him what horribly has happened. While he's still speaking, the messenger came in and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. You might be thinking at this point in time, how on earth is this a lesson on worshiping our Lord and Savior? Let me go on. At this, Job, now at this, after all these horrible things has happened, at this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Think about everything that has just happened to this man. One tragedy, his whole livelihood, everything he owns, all of his servants are dead. His entire family has been put to the sword. And yet his first reaction is to humble himself and worship God. Now, I know that there are lots of people in here who have suffered. I know that lots of people have had tragedy. And let me just go ahead and tell you, for me personally, I'm not convinced that my first reaction would be to humble myself and bow down and worship God, if I'm being honest with myself. And yet that's the first reaction of Job. Now also keep in mind that God does tell us that Job is like no other on earth when he says this. But there's a reason that this person who is like no other on earth, that the first thing that he does is that he worships God. So now I want to go to another example. And this example is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This is Satan's temptation of Jesus. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We know this story and there's an awful lot in there and there's a whole lot that we understand about that. But, is that the only thing that Jesus, God incarnate, could have said to Satan that would make him leave. Remember, Jesus was there before the beginning. He was there when the entire earth was created. He was there. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is and will be and always will be. Is that the only thing that he could have said to Satan to make him go away? No, but... What does he say? He refers back to Deuteronomy, which we started off with. 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Even though Jesus could have responded differently, He sat about and referred back to God's command about worshiping the Father. And that made Satan go away. It seems to me pretty important if the Son of God refers back to worshiping the Father as a key component when he's being tempted by Satan. So, if I haven't convinced you yet that worshiping is important, I think that I didn't need to sit there and spend that time doing it, but it helped me to go on to our next step, which is what really does worship mean? And you're going, oh my goodness, how long are we going to have to go through this, the silly questions that we have? Again, we were here this morning and we're worshiping the Lord. Another silly question. But if you think about the term worship, we use it often. We talk about it, and we especially use it here on Sunday mornings, and it's rightfully so. Please do not misunderstand that everything that we're doing here this morning is proper and right, and we should be worshiping the Lord here together. So please do not misunderstand that I mean any disrespect. But we use that term a lot. We talk about worship. We talk about our worship service. We say, let us continue our time in worship. When we hear other people talking about worshiping on Sunday mornings, we know exactly what they mean. An image comes to our mind. Whether they're a member of this church or a member of another church, if they tell you, I went to go worship this last Sunday morning, we have an image in our mind of what that means, right? We think that they probably received a message. Maybe they sang some songs, depending on what, uh, what denomination they are. They may have recited some things. They may have done some, some certain things some certain activities, but we get the idea immediately of what worship means. But because it's become so common in our vernacular, I think we risk taking it for granted of what worship really means. At the most basic level, Kerry did this in his sermon, and I've got to do it too. I went back, but actually, if you go back and listen to Kerry's sermon, he didn't remember where he got his term from, which dictionary he looked at. I looked at a 1969 version of Webster's New New Collegiate Dictionary. And yes, that was actually before I was born, believe it or not, is when that dictionary came out, but it was one that was handy. And by the way, the online, online definition is the same. But it defines worship as to honor or revere as a divine being or supernatural power to regard with extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. And that makes perfect sense, right? But it applies to a lot of different things to say that we worship. And we actually use the term worship for a lot of different things. We talk about people worshiping the ground that someone else walked on. Y'all have heard that term. You may have even thought that yourself back, you know, when you were interested in someone else, that you were worshiping the ground that they walked on. We talk about people worshiping um, money. We even, in, in Great Britain, they actually refer to people who might be in royalty as your worship. The term gets used, and that's a noun, by the way, we're talking about in the form of a verb, but the term gets used a lot, and that's the point. And the problem is that most of those things that we're talking about, that's not the worship that we're talking about, right? It's just an illustration about how that term can sit there and be misconstrued. So when we hear genuine worship, what are we talking about with genuine worship? Because it's genuine worship of God. So again, I think it's good that we go and we find, we go on with the definition and get a better definition, perhaps with some other people who have a Christian basis for theirs. C.H. Spurgeon defined worship as the true worship lies in your heart paying reverence to Him, your soul obeying Him, and your inner nature coming into conformity to His own nature by the work of His Spirit in your soul. 
John MacArthur defines it as our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, words, based on the truth of God as He has revealed Himself, or to put it more simply, worship is all that we are, reacting rightly to all that He is. Stephen Cole defines it as an inner attitude and feeling of awe, reverence, gratitude, and love toward God, resulting from a realization of who He is and who we are. So there's a lot of similarities between those three different definitions of worship. And I get that. But here's the ones that I want you to remember as we go through this morning, again, over the next few hours. You're still listening. I'm really impressed. There's some key phrases in there that I want you to hear. Your inner nature, our innermost being, an inner attitude. Okay, so now we have some definitions, Christian-based definitions of worship. So then how are we to worship God? Is there anything in the Bible that could possibly give us, as I said before, there's a lot in the Bible that can give us an idea about worshiping. But this is the verses that I really want to sit there and focus on this morning. And it's in John 4, verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither the mountain, neither this mountain, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And skipping a little bit, but an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and truth. So not to sit there and go in a big, long dissertation about what happened right before that, and there's an awful lot to cover um, in this passage, but I do want to talk a little bit about what Jesus says here about worshipers and worshiping. Y'all know a little bit of the background. Jesus is tired, and he stops at Jacob's well in Samaria, and he asks a Samaritan woman who is there if she would get him a drink of water. She's surprised because Jews don't normally associate with or talk with Samaritans. But a conversation ensues, and you might remember the conversation, if you're familiar with the story. Conversation ensues, and Jesus talks about her husband or husbands or lack thereof, etc. And then we finally get down to the verses that I just talked about, where she mentions worshiping at Mount Gerizim, if I have that right, versus worshiping in Jerusalem. There was a competing temple, if you will, that the Samaritans had, and they didn't go to Jerusalem. They had it wrong, but there was this competing temple, and that's what she's bringing up. And then, and she does not know this, I'm convinced she does not know this, that Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, but an hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She had no idea at that time, I'm convinced, the significance of what he just said. But everything that they have been doing up to that point in time, Christ is saying, 
will no longer be what you're supposed to do to worship God. It is a total 100% paradigm change of everything. Up to this point in time, if you were to worship God, you were supposed to go to Jerusalem a few times a year, and I'm simplifying this, you're supposed to make sacrifices, you're supposed to give things to him, say things, and then turn around and go. It was a physical act where you went to a place to worship God. Jesus is telling her, there's a coming a time, and now is, that that will no longer be the case. You will not go to this mountain. You will not go to that mountain. You will not go to Jerusalem to worship God. And then he says this, God is spirit. Which is certainly correct, but the significance being that God isn't in just one physical location. God is everywhere. We know that. He's omnipresent. But because God is spirit, he wants his true worshipers to worship him in spirit as well. Worshiping God is not a place. Worshiping God, we do not have to come here to Melanie Park Church, in this building, in order to worship God. It's not the physical location that's important. And it's also pointed out here. So what does he mean when he wants us to worship in spirit? It means that God is looking for sincere worshipers, followers who show how they worship God by their spirit. I'm talking in circles, it seems like, when I say that. But as I mentioned up to this point, it had been critical for the Jews to travel to the temple offer the physical sacrifices like I mentioned, but God wants man to worship in spirit. And I think all along God wanted man to worship in spirit as well. So what does worshiping in spirit look like? Well, when you physically go and offer sacrifices, and that is your act of worship, what doesn't it show? It doesn't show things like love. It doesn't show things like devotion. It doesn't show things. It might show obedience to a certain extent, but it's not obedience of what? It's not obedience of the heart. Things that aren't dependent upon our physical bodies at all. These are things that are in our spirit. They are things of the heart. Remember what we talked about earlier when we talked about those definitions, and I ask you to remember those phrases that we were talking about? Your inner nature, our innermost being, our inner attitude. When you think of spirit in this case, you need to think of it as a sincere and deep-held belief. And it's more than that. It's offering up everything. You're not supposed to just offer up your physical bodies, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute as well. It's talking about everything inside of you is what God is asking you to use in worshiping Him. Your innermost being, everything that's in your heart, your devotion, your love, things that cannot manifest itself easily or if ever, truly, physically. These are things that are in your heart. We use this all the time. We use this term all the time, too, and you understand it. We think, well, that was a heartfelt emotion that someone has, or I take something to heart. What do we mean by that? We mean that it's something that is so important to us, and I, granted, people still use it flippantly, but something so important to us that when we take it to heart, we are actually changing our lives because of whatever that is when we take it to heart. We are changing what we do in our lives. That's what it means as far as in spirit goes. But there's also something else that's very, very important here when he says worship in spirit. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And I want to know if you caught it. 
What else does that actually entail if you're going to have to worship in spirit? Sorry, I used notes, so I actually wouldn't go several hours. Um, Since God can only know what truly is in your innermost being, what is in your heart, only God really knows that, right? Only God can sit there and see what's in Matt's heart, what's in Carrie's heart, what's in Tom's heart. We might have some physical manifestations that might reflect what their heart and where their heart really is, but truly, I cannot know with absolute certainty. Only God can know with absolute certainty what's in your heart. So when he says this to the Samaritan woman, the other thing that he's telling her is God wants a personal one-on-one relationship with you. Brian talked about that this morning. That is hugely significant. It is about you and your relationship with God when he says, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. That's also a huge paradigm-changing statement, right? It is so personal. But as I said before, I think that God's always wanted that personal relationship with him. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read Isaiah real quick. And this is where I think, this is Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. The Lord says, The people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people With wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. That's what Jesus is saying right there when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. It is now a personal relationship, and it's something that God has always sought after. So what does it mean now that we have in spirit? There's a second half to that. It's in truth. And again, this seems like a silly question when we say, what does in truth mean? It seems straightforward. In fact, it is recorded later on in John, not only there, but in other places. And it's a verse that many of y'all probably have memorized, but I think it's the quickest and easiest way to sit to respond to it. John 14, 6. What does that say? I'm sure you've memorized it. Jesus says, I am the way and the what? The truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the truth. And the question is, what's that truth? And we know what that is. The truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God incarnate, that he came onto this earth and sacrificed himself for us, for a relationship with us. And whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That's the truth, right? We know that as being the truth. Now, we know that there's more to learn in that, but we also have learned that everything in this, in this Bible points towards Jesus Christ. Everything in here. It's all designed to point towards Jesus Christ. And we know that there is more to it. But the good news is is that we have the truth in front of us, right? This is here. We have the advantage of the truth. God's Word is here before us. We have the truth. And we know that God's Word is the truth. And the ultimate truth is that 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 He sent Jesus as our Savior. So the command here when talking to the Samaritan woman is that those who worship Him must do it in spirit and truth. It's not one or the other. You must do both. And you might be thinking, well... So what's an example of, of, the, of the difference? Well, you can think of that real quickly, and I'll go through this real quickly. You can sit there and worship in spirit alone without the truth. We have lots of examples in this earth today. Is it not someone who has a sincere, deep-held belief, albeit false, 
that kills themselves and kills others in the name of their religion. That's a sincere, deep-held belief. It's wrong, but it's a sincere, deep-held belief. What about in truth? Can you worship in truth without the Spirit? I would say that we have examples of that, and we know of examples of that as, as well. I'm sure that there are lots of people, I say lots of people, I don't know, but there are people who may devoutly attend church, may devoutly go and sing the songs, may devoutly do everything, but it still is not what's their innermost being. They do all the functions that we're supposed to do in our society to sit there and keep up the right appearances, but has it been that life-changing moment, that heartfelt, deep emotion, their innermost being that actually has changed their life? It must be in both, in spirit and in truth. It's not one or the other. And actually, if you look at that verse that's there in John, it envisions the idea that there will be one without the other because he says, true worshipers shall or must worship in spirit and truth. The implication being that there are false worshipers. So, how does all of this, when we talk about what worshiping is, how does it manifest itself in worshiping God individually? Well, this might come as something familiar to you. In Romans 12.1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I want you to notice a couple things about that verse right there. I'm not going to go through all nine verses that, that Carrie taught us on a couple months ago, but that one verse right there, I want you to notice a couple things. Paul ties together both the physical and the spiritual, right? It's your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, and it's your spiritual service of worship. A service that actually has to come from your innermost being, your heart. Carrie did a great job teaching us on this passage, and again, I would commend you to go back and listen to his sermon, but one of the things, if I could briefly sum up Carrie's conclusion, and forgive me, Carrie, if I get this wrong, but he stated that we Christians are called to spiritual service of worship of God by the Holy Spirit's transformation of our mind and our outpouring of love to others. That makes perfect sense. And it makes, I'm hoping it makes perfect sense that you can see the correlation of what we've been talking about this morning. What would be more worshipful than to emulate through the Holy Spirit what God has done for us? God came down in human form to sacrifice Himself for us because of our sins so that He could have an everlasting relationship. Let me change that a little bit. God came down in human form to sacrifice Himself for my sins, so that I could have an everlasting relationship with Him. It's personal. So knowing that, doesn't it make sense that you would want to worship God by showing others the love God has shown you by letting that same love through the work of the Holy Spirit manifest itself in the form of loving others? Doesn't it make sense? What is more worshipful than to emulate what He has done for us? 
And I would suggest that you cannot do that. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, performing this spiritual service of worship, unless you truly do worship God in both spirit and truth. Isn't it interesting that by worshiping God in this manner, when you think about it, also serves as your witness to those around you. Living your life worshiping God is going to be your best witness. So, that's in the individual. What about a body? What about for us as a body of Christ? Well, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read. It is, as I mentioned before, it is absolutely right and proper that we gather together here on Sunday mornings. While this building may not be important, while the physical location may not be important, it is your heart, it is your spirit, and it is what we do. And as Carrie reminded us when you go back to Romans, all of us have these gifts, and we act as a body together in worshiping our Lord and Savior. So it is proper and right that we come together. And there is lots in the Bible about what we should do as we come together. But I'm going to read just one. And we actually had other psalms that we referenced up here in our songs. But I'm going to read Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. What's another way to think about that? What came to my mind, and I know that there is a lot that's wrong about this analogy, but what came to my mind was a pep rally. Who's the audience in a pep rally? There is no audience. You're there as one group trying to sit there and generate a feeling to go out there and beat the other team. We're not here to beat the other team. We're to go out and worship God. We're to use this time together to sit there and worship God. And then as we do this, it should be a time of rejuvenation, refreshment, a time of fellowship, a time where then you go out and it helps you live each and every day and moment of your life as you go out there in this dark world worshiping the Lord. And by doing so, that light inside of you is going to shine. Now, I know that there's lots of hard things that come, that there are lots of hard things that have happened in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, even Job fell down and worshiped the Lord. I'm not making light of anything. And that's also what a body is supposed to do, is to come together, to worship together, to support one another, to mourn with one another, to rejoice with one another. This is us, and it's critical that we come together and do this. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But it's not a day. It's not one day. It's not one place. It's not one time. You know, when John Adams said, really, July 2nd should be the day that we should celebrate our independence because that's when they passed the Declaration of Independence. They just signed it on July 4th. That's very important to me because my birthday is July 2nd, so I think it's kind of important <laughs> to do it that way. But... He's talking about one day. There is nothing in here that talks about one day. It says, true worshipers shall worship in spirit and truth. Paul talks about 
your bodies as living sacrifices. It doesn't say just once. It talks about whenever you eat and drink, and I don't know the context of it, but whenever you eat and drink, you should do these things in worship. Everything that we do every day should be an act of worship. So as I conclude, um, I hope you now kind of get an idea of why it's so important to have something like genuine worship in the mission of Melanie Park Church. Let's look at that again. Genuine worship of God that permeates our daily lives, choices, and relationships. Thinking about what we've studied this morning, I hope you realize that by genuinely worshiping God in spirit and in truth, it will naturally permeate our daily lives, choices, and relationships. And if you're like me, you'll also realize that I've got some work to do. It entails every aspect of my life. And if I look at every aspect of my life this past week, I have failed at times, not just at times. I have failed in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But don't worry about that, because if you talk to some of our senior saints, and we've got one that we're celebrating her birthday here next week in Mrs. Courtney, I bet she would tell you that it is a continuous work in progress. You will always be working in your worship of the Lord. It will only be perfected when our spirit meets with Him in heaven. That's when it will be perfected. So let, it, let me pray for you. Pray for us. Almost dear Heavenly Father, as we recognize who you are, with your very breath you created the heavens and the earth. That everything within this universe is something that you created. Dear Lord, it is humbling how much you loved us by coming down here and sacrificing your Son so that you can have a relationship with us. It is only right, dear Lord, that as we go out each and every day and we live our lives, that we show that love through our worship of you. And we show that love to those of us who are around us so that they may have that same opportunity to come to you, dear Lord. Thank you for this opportunity for us to gather together and worship. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Real quick, while I was preparing for this, usually I have a movie reference that comes to mind, but instead I had a song from a band in, in junior high that came to mind. It was from the police, believe it or not, and it was a song called Every Breath You Take, Every Move You Make, I'll Be Watching You. Kind of creepy, in all honesty. I mean, it's, it's a song about stalking, apparently. But it came to my mind because it should be every breath you take, every move you make, every thought you have, every deed you do, Everything that we do each and every day should be in worship of our Lord.